You are listening to The Meaningful Life with George Haas podcast. For more information, please visit metagroup.org. That's M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P dot O-R-G. It's the third day of the Meaningful Life uh, Winter Retreat at Seven Circles Retreat Center. And let's begin by taking the precepts. I undertake the precept of not harming living beings. I undertake the precept of not taking what is not freely offered. I undertake the precept of not taking what is not freely offered. I undertake the precept of wise sexuality. I undertake the precept of wise sexuality. I undertake the precept of using right speech. I undertake the precept of using right speech. I undertake the precept of not using intoxicants. I undertake the precept of not using intoxicants. So we're using this practice of metta to develop high concentration states. We're also using it to recognize the nature of mind states. Um, we're also looking at it to develop the capacity to regulate mind states. Um, if you look at this, this graphing of uh, spiritual development, one aspect of it is uh, that you notice that mind states can be regulated and you develop the skill to do it. So this is in keeping with your spiritual development. If you're not able to regulate your mind states, then you're really just uh, reactive uh, to the environment that you're in with, and it can just bash you endlessly. Um, I like uh, the, the definition that Dan Brown uses of dukkha as reactivity. That's his definition of dukkha. So that if you don't have any agency in how your body-mind reacts to the stimulus, then what you have to do is withdraw yourself from stimulus as a way of regulating your experience. And so some of us will notice that we had developed in our uh, earlier life the need to withdraw to regulate our emotional experience as part of the response to conditioning. So in the development of metta, in the way that we practice it, so much focused on the mind state, we begin to develop this capacity to regulate our experience and make the uh, reactivity of the human condition less afflictive. Is that making sense? <clears throat> um, metta is really about anger and hatred. So the extreme reaction of anger and hatred and a way of modulating it or regulating it. We all grow up in family systems and we learn in the family systems that we grow up in the ways uh, that our family system uses to regulate experience. <clears throat> if you came from my family, then you learned to use anger as one of the ways of regulating your experience. So there is a constant generation of anger. Um, in this understanding that mind states can be regulated by thinking, well, then we, we open up to this whole range of options that we have, that we've learned, that we've really honed to perfection to regulate our mind states by thinking. So 
Maybe you'll notice if you use anger that you have a half a dozen themes that generate intense anger. Three words into the storyline and the body is already reacting with intense anger. Um, if you grew up in my family, you would have also learned to regulate experience with sadness. The two main ways that we regulate in, in my family system are anger and sadness. We were not so much a fear-based family, but some some people catastrophize as a way of emotionally regulating. That's the same thing that we're talking about. Some people use shame. Shame was a, a big one in, in my family, but the two dominant ones were definitely anger and sadness. Um, some people use helplessness as a way of regulating their experience. These can all be pointed to specific kinds of attachment conditioning. <clears throat> Let's say you grew up in a secure household and what you learned from the experience of being an infant in a secure household is that somebody will reliably show up and take care of you. Uh, and so your sense of yourself that develops from that is one of um, capability. I call out to the world for my needs to be met and somebody just comes and takes care of me. That would be a way of developing a secure attachment and then you would think of yourself as capable of getting your needs met and you would see the world as a place that would will readily respond to you and meet your needs. And so when you walk out into the world, you walk out with that view. I'm capable and the world will respond and it's easy to be authentic uh, and present what you need because your expectation is that those needs will be met and people will be happy to do it. <clears throat> That's view. But if you didn't have that experience, then you develop a different way of thinking about yourself and a different way of experiencing the world. And so part of what this metta practice is about is opening uh, to this even-handed curiosity about yourself and what your conditioning has done to create this way of experiencing yourself in the world, um, it opens into the understanding of the three characteristics in the sense that there's no self. We don't need to protect ourselves. We can be open and curious about how we'll respond to things. Um, I kind of move into a systems idea about it. <clears throat> You are a system that has been developed through your conditioning, through the things that actually happened to you, and you respond to the reactivity of the human condition based on the database of your conditioning, of which you know practically nothing. If we rely on the French neuroscientists, um, maybe I get such glee about them being French because we live in Trump's America. <laughs> don't get it, or you do get it. Um, <clears throat> we deride the French. Remember Freedom Fries? <laughs> that was Bush. We had Reagan, that was 1.0, then we had Bush, that was 2.0, we now have Trump, 3.0, same lineage. <clears throat> going to give good old trickle-down economics another go. <laughs> <laughs> <That's good. laughs>
named it Vacuum Up. There would be more evidence. <laughs> that it's effective. Um, all right. 11 million bits per second you process. That's the total picture, and then the conscious mind uh, processes at 16 bits. So if you could think of metta as this, uh, as this coming into the place of 16 bits and just watching what's happening, because it's really the only way that you're going to know what the deep processing is. These little, these little bulletins that you get consciously about what's actually going on is the information about the whole operation of the system. <coughs> and so we come into this place of uh, an open-hearted curiosity and a kindness, and we, we watch from this place of kindness our process, our way of being in the world, without this identification that this is a me doing it, right? Um, we know uh, from the current level of neuroscience that we don't make decisions consciously. They're all unconscious. They're simply reported to the conscious mind for last-minute veto. Is this a boneheaded idea or not? That's basically what we do consciously. We stop ourselves from taking the action that the body-mind has formulated taking. Even if you think that you're thirsty and you're reaching for a drink, the, the process of, of that happening preceded your conscious thought of it happening. So we really want to get to this neutral place where we're not defending uh, an awareness of ourselves and our activities and our choices and all that whole process that we go through to formulate the action that we take. We want to be continuously present for it and open to what we're doing, and this is the, really the practice of metta for self, to be continuously aware and open to the, the, the body-mind processing. We won't really know ourselves very well if we need to split off information from, <coughs> our, from ourselves. <clears throat> And, and depending on your early conditioning, these habits are ingrained early and you just keep doing them unless you can examine them and see what you're doing. If you were a child whose attachment needs were continuously rejected by your caregivers, the fluidity of longing, which is this great energy for connection in human relationships, uh, turns into a kind of bitter sadness, encased in shame. Often children who have the experience of their attachment needs being rejected consistently also have the experience of being shamed for having them in the first place. This, is, this would be an, an uh, avoidant child, but it would, they, children often grow up into a dismissing adults if they have an avoidant experience of childhood. What uh, those, uh, that conditioning leads to is not somebody who gives up on getting their needs met, which is what happens 
they give up on asking for their needs to be met, and they feel a moral justification to take whatever they want. Um, I think our president is a good example of that kind of process. If we were to, to examine the causes of that, then we would see a, a child who suffered enormously uh, and was consistently rejected to the point that he simply stopped asking for that. This is, a t this is an extraordinary difficulty for a child, an extraordinary amount of pain that then leads to this kind of indifference to other people. That indifference comes because of a suppression of the awareness of their emotional life, because the, the sadness and rejection is overwhelming, and so the only way that they can really manage it is by repressing it, or suppressing it. And in doing so, they suppress as well the empathetic experience of other people. <coughs> and depending, empathy is on three levels. The first is a visceral response, a visceral response to the experience of someone else's physical pain. This is the main breaking system in, in terms of your own action. If you're empathetic and you, you take a, a harsh action towards somebody and you, you witness their pain, physical or emotional, then you stop the action because of your empathetic response to pain. But if you don't have that, there's no break. The second layer of empathy is where you can recognize the facial expressions and body language of somebody and infer from that expression, that outward expression, what their internal experience might be. If you, if you're, uh, a lot of people who are dismissive have a very highly developed second level, but some don't. And then the third level is where you actually feel the emotional experience of someone else in your body. That's what we in Buddhism call compassionate empathy. If you have all three of those functioning, you have a good idea how the other person is responding to, and if you're impaired in any of those, then other people are a mystery and you don't really know what's happening with them. People who are highly dismissive don't have the third level or the second level, and if you aren't telling them in words what they want, they have no way of understanding you at all. They're completely blind, which causes an intense amount of fear in dismissing people, and so they become bullying or seductive, that you endorse their worldview. That's the conditioning for that. <coughs> it's about 30% of people who are secure and about 20% who are dismissing in our culture. This is in all Western cultures, except for one in Russia. Um, they have 9% secure and a higher, much higher level of fearful avoidance. Um, if you're unwilling to be present for the experience of your own conditioning, which manifests in, in say, attachment, presentation, then you won't see yourself well, you won't know yourself well, you won't know what your reactivity is, and you won't really understand why it is that, that you don't get the things that you want to get, or why you feel a sense of despair uh, at being alive. <coughs> 
uh, people who are preoccupied adults uh, grow up in an environment where uh, their caregiver is unpredictable. Um, sometimes they get the thing that they ask for, sometimes they don't. Uh, and it happens, the inconsistency is so consistent that um, what happens to them is they don't develop a sense of being capable of, of getting what they need because they can't figure out a, a systematic or a predictable way of getting what they need. They develop a sense of themselves as incapable, but they, because sometimes they get their needs met, they think that other people could meet their needs. Uh, so they see other people as capable and themselves as incapable. If you go out into the world and you think of yourself as incapable and everybody else capable, it changes the mental constructs and it also changes the processing for the actions that you take. But if you aren't aware that that's what you're doing, because you can't look at the experience of yourself, then you just keep going on that, that line and it takes you in, in a predictable uh, um, path. Um, these are all organized strategies. Secure, dismissing, preoccupied on the helpless end. Um, some people who have um, trauma or, or much more difficult childhoods than that end up with a disorganized attachment. <clears throat> and you can, if you know what you're looking for, see that they become disorganized when, it, when they're attempting to uh, actualize uh, themselves. That is to say, uh, for them to express themselves authentically and to ask actually for what they need tends to put them internally into a disorganized state. And so the, the, the approach that they take uh, is a puzzle. Could you give an example of that? Um, hmm. Um, well, I suppose we could use a dating example. <laughs> um, nothing's popping to mind. Is that the Chinese food example? Oh, yeah, that's one. Um, with fearful avoidant people, they, because they get internally into this kind of cycle of trying to figure out what to do, um, they often appear passive on the outside. And so you could say to somebody, uh, let's go out to eat, and they would say, okay. Uh, and then you would say, where do you want to go? And they would say, I don't know, you pick. And then you would say, okay, let's go have Chinese food. And the fearful avoidant person at that point would become disorganized because they don't like Chinese food and they don't want to have Chinese food. But the disorganization prevents them from communicating that they don't want to go have Chinese food. And so they go along. <clears throat> and then they're sitting across from you in the Chinese restaurant and then they scream at you, why, why the fuck would you take me to a Chinese <laughs> restaurant? I hate Chinese food. <laughs> 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 uh, 
I thought you, you said you wanted to come. I did! <laughs> <laughs> you don't see me. You should have seen that I didn't want to go. Even though I made no outward expression of that at all. <clears throat> That's the fearful avoidant thing. Hmm? This is the, the anger of the fearful avoidant um, from not being seen. Is that always in a disorganized um, experience, or that's the origin of it in the disorganized. If you you could track this by the use of anger, so it isn't actually the presentation of the event that's the problem. It is the um, it is the underlying motivation for the action. Um, a dismissing person could say, "Why would you bring me to a Chinese restaurant? They're also low rent. I like to go to fine dining." Right? But the, the indication there is that it's an insufficient social status for them. <clears throat> Look at this dump you brought me to, right? Um, uh, dismissing people are, are very focused on, on maintaining the, the presentation of high social value so that they would, it, they would think that being seen in a sort of divey <clears throat> restaurant would be a reflection and devaluing of their social value. And they, they would find that intolerable. <coughs> you, you remember President Trump saying that he didn't think he was going to live in the White House because it was such a dump? <laughs> Where's the gold? Secure people get mad about the conditions, and once <clears throat> the conditions are resolved, their anger goes away. Dismissing people get, um, use anger, it's a kind of derogating or devaluing anger <coughs> as a way of regulating their abandonment experience. Um, if, you, uh, if they think that you're going to abandon them, then they'll devalue you to nothing, so it doesn't matter whether you abandon them or not. Um, preoccupied people use anger <clears throat> as a way of connecting. So they scan the environment for a problem and they present it angrily, demanding that you fix it, but actually what they, they're wanting out of the exchange is proximity. They, they could care less about what's wrong, usually. And then fearful avoidant people get mad if they feel unseen. Today we're going to begin practicing metta for ourselves, and so I really want to invite you to, to come to this place of an open-hearted, kind curiosity about yourself. Um, you are your main traveling companion. You are the one you spend the most time with. Um, you are responsible for your care. If you don't take care of yourself, then you're, you're not able to respond to the world uh, that you're living in. Is that, am I articulating this well enough? If you don't take care of yourself, then you're not in good shape to take care of yourself. Is that making sense? If you don't take care of yourself, you're not in good shape to take care of the other people that, that you're charged with taking care of. 
if you do take care of yourself, then things are easier. Um, <coughs> so, in the beginning, really, what we want to do is, is develop the capacity to maintain the mind state of kindness, of open-hearted curiosity, and then we want to be able to track the different mind states that come in, and we want to have agency in being able to swap them out. So, in some sense, this is an emotional regulating strategy. We develop the skill of regulating ourselves through kindness and openness, <coughs> rather than through maybe some of the afflictive <coughs> strategies that you learned in your family system. You don't have a choice about whether you emotionally regulate or not. You have um, only only uh, the choice of which tools to emotionally regulate yourself with. If you don't examine the, the, the tool set that you uh, learned as a child, you'll continue to use them. The, the body-mind associates different emotional regulation strategies with different patterns of events or different patterns of experience, and you can see them pretty well linked out if you... That would be a, a Vipassana exploration. This happens, um, <coughs> Dan Siegel, um, who's actually based in LA, and, uh, came up with this concept of the window of tolerance of emotional experience. Everybody will have a slightly different window of tolerance depending on your conditioning. Some people it's very narrow, and some people it's quite broad. So something happens, <coughs> There's an emotional response to it. If it's within the window of tolerance, the body-mind doesn't need to do anything to regulate that experience. It just flows through. If it exceeds the window of tolerance, then you have an emotional event that needs to be regulated, and the body-mind has a set of tools to regular, regulate that kind of event. And it will just reach into the tool bag and begin the operation, which is usually by thinking. Do you notice that a lot of the time you're not in the experience of the present moment, but you're thinking about the past or you're planning the future? If you're thinking about the past or planning the future, you're engaged in the activity of emotionally regulating yourself, of regulating your mind state. So we're all pretty much aware that we do it, and we do a lot of it. If you use afflictive strategies, you can't just stop using them. You have to replace them with something that works as well. And so in the beginning, you'll be doing your metta practice and it won't work nearly as well as, you know, a lifetime of anger works or a lifetime of sadness works. And so you'll stop the anger thought and you'll push in the, the kindness thought and the mind will spit out the kindness thought and return to anger and you have to do it over and over again. This is this practice that we're doing here. You notice that you're coming into training the mind to focus on kindness and you keep going off. And so you have to come back and come back and come back and then develop the capacity to sustain that mind state so that it has the same capacity to regulate your experience as other mind states do. Um, I think the good thing about this is a lot of it is rote learning. You're, you're developing this. The technique is very simple. 
So you're just monitoring whether the mind state of kindness is there or not. <coughs> if it's not, you generate it. And then you attempt to sustain it by maintaining uh, awareness of it. When we move into the practice for ourselves, you may find that, um, and this is often in the beginning of metta practice, that you, you, you don't have a, a lot of kindness built into the working model of yourself. It's actually much harsher, depending on what was demanded of you as a child. Um, secure people learn to share their exploration and, uh, and because the, their experience in childhood is that they're valued and their exploration is encouraged, they learn to explore things that have meaning to them. And they learn to <coughs> share the experience of what's meaningful. <coughs> if you didn't have that experience growing up, then the way that you explore is going to be affected by the conditioning. Um, if you grew up to be a dismissing adult, you, your exploration is going to be tied to what kind of social status it can give you. It's a kind of pseudo-exploration. If you have a choice between an activity that will give you the, the power and prestige of a high social position or something that's meaningful, you almost always pick the thing that has high value over the thing that has meaning. And so what you have, uh, or people who have that experience, achieve a high level of social status but it doesn't really mean anything to them. And so they, they don't value it in the same way as something that, that actually resonated with them. So, they're very good at exploring um, because they've also never had to have the experience of coming back and sharing their exploration with anybody. It doesn't really even occur to them most of the time to do that because they were so consistently rejected as childhood. Nobody was there waiting for them to come back and share their experience. Nobody was interested in their experience. Um, and so they don't have that peace of it. Um, <clears throat> preoccupied people uh, abandon their capacity to explore, so they often are underdeveloped in their capacity to explore because their caregiver um, inhibited, intentionally inhibited their capacity to explore or to develop exploration because it meant that they would separate themselves from the caregiver and the caregiver used them as a way of emotionally regulating themselves. Um, also, in the preoccupied thing, there can be a kind of role reversal where the, the child becomes the, the, the parent. So, if you've ever been around a six-year-old adult, <coughs> who's controlling the dynamics of the household, you're, 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 you're with a, somebody who's preoccupied. They don't, if they don't take care of the caregiver, the caregiver won't be able to take care of them. And the caregiver has the access to the adult world, the child doesn't, and they know that. And so they're constantly prompting and insisting that the, the caregiver take the responsible actions, like buy the groceries or fill out the the, the forms for school um, so that they can get uh, care. Is that making sense? <clears throat> Is it possible to 
in a category, like in more than one category, and within each category is, I presume there's like a spectrum, right? There is. Um, <coughs> the only uh, category that has the features of all of them is the fearful avoidant category. So fearful avoidant um, kids, um, you have fearful preoccupied and you have a fearful category which is disorganized and you have fearful preoccupied people and fearful avoidant people. Um, organized means that you, you consistently go back to the same strategy for your attachment need and your exploration need and disorganized means you're all over the map. Fearful preoccupied people use uh, an angry demand rather than a presentation of helplessness. That's the difference, but they're pretty consistent. Fearful avoidant people can present as secure, they can present as dismissing, they can present as preoccupied. Another way to look at that is that some people deactivate their uh, attachment needs and some people hyperactivate their attachment needs. In a secure person, they have facility for both. Something happens and you become preoccupied with your attachment figure. When you get proximity, you deactivate the attachment mechanism because you've, you've been relieved of the need. Attachment is really about protection or safety. <clears throat> As a child, if something frightens you, your attachment mechanism hyperactivates and you seek proximity to your caregiver for protection. And then when you get the protection, you settle and that's the deactivation of that. In dismissing uh, people, they deactivate and then they don't reactivate. That's what happens to them and that's the, the dominant experience that they have. In preoccupied people, they hyperactivate and, that's the dom and don't settle. So the inhibition in preoccupied people is with the deactivation and the <coughs> inhibition in dismissing people is the, the hyperactivation. <coughs> If a dismissing person fears abandonment, they deactivate the attachment mechanism as a way of regulating it, rather than hyperactivating and seeking proximity. And the opposite is true of a preoccupied person. But a fearful avoidant person can both hyperactivate and deactivate at the same time. That's the problem with the Chinese restaurant. They don't want to go to the Chinese restaurant, which causes an abandonment experience for them. They think that if they say that they don't want to go to the Chinese restaurant, they'll be abandoned, which hyperactivates. But then they're afraid to express that because if they, they think that if they express that, they'll be killed, and so then they deactivate the attachment mechanism. And so uh, <coughs> the outward expression of that is disorganization or passivity. That's what the, uh, the other person is experiencing of them. But the internal experience is uh, spinning to try and figure out what to do and at the same time making no outward gesture of it. Are you following me on that? Is it, is it really like spinning or is it, is it just, um, can it be like reflex, reflex um, like a reflex? You know, is it well, it's like, um, should I do this or should I do that? No, I'll do that. Okay. I'll do this. That'll work. Nope, that won't work. I'll do this. No, I'll do that. Uh, like yes, no, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, it's a kind of push-pull. If I do that, this could happen. So I won't do that. I'll do this. This is a better choice. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's not such a good choice. I'll, I could do this. If I do this, that'll happen. If that happens, that wouldn't be good. I'll do this instead. And that's perseverating? That's perseverating. 
What is that? Not everyone does that. Is there an effective way to work with people like that? Sure. Whatever you thought last is good enough and just do that. That will take you out of the perseveration and into action. And then you can actually see what the outcome of the action would be. Whereas if you don't take any action, you don't have any evidence of what, what could happen. So do preoccupied people, because obviously they perseverate, but um, do they just make decisions in ways that people always do? Or so how does that the fearful avoidant perseverates out of self-protection, and the preoccupied person thinks that that they're incapable of getting their needs met, but you could you could meet their needs, and so all they have to do is figure out how to get you to meet their needs. So their perseveration is on how to get you to meet their needs. It's very it's a different kind of perseveration. If I, if I show up like this and I say this, then I'll be able to get what I want. <coughs> yeah, it's a manipulation. Different they'll, kind they'll of... They'll like it if I say this. Yes. So, again, it's not the action necessarily on the outward, it's the underlying motivation for it. <coughs> everybody here has attachment conditioning, and everybody here has the capacity to explore that's been impacted by their conditioning. And so I really want you to understand in this practice of metta for self, we want to be present and experience ourselves the way that we are without the filtering, without the suppression, so that we can actually see what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, we might have gone off on a tangent before you got to how a fearful avoidant explores. A fearful avoidant <coughs> um, typically uh, has good beginnings. They, they're, they're capable of exploring. Uh, the problem that uh, fearful avoidant people have is uh, getting emotionally dysregulated in the process of exploring. <coughs> um, dismissing people deactivate their attachment mechanism and they suppress all awareness of their emotion and so they don't really have that in inhibition. They're totally driven by their emotion but it's unconscious. So. Um, it doesn't tend to inhibit their exploration. In fact, it makes them really excellent explorers because if something is really frightening, they don't have any awareness that it's really frightening. They have anxiety, uh, um, but they don't tie it to anything and it doesn't inhibit them. Um, but they get the same amount of <clears throat> enjoyment from the exploration? If they don't. Typically, it's th what they're so the difference between secure exploration and, and other kinds of exploration is secure exploration is about what actually is meaningful to you. Everybody's conditioning is different, so what's meaningful to you is going to be different than other people's meaning. Are you spending your time, energy, and resources pursuing what actually has meaning to you because of the meaning of it? Um, dismissing people have a tendency to pursue things that have high value, whether it has meaning to them or not. So they can often get the goal of pursuing the thing that has high value, and they can have the high value, but it doesn't have any real meaning beyond the positioning that it puts them in. And so how they think other people are perceiving their exploration? Uh, um, <laughs> what kind of... Uh, agency it gives them over other people. 
Dismissing people like to be in power. Mm -hmm. They like to be in control. And so they pursue things that will give them that. Mm -hmm. um, is there a difficulty to set boundaries on both fearful preoccupied and fearful avoidance? How do you mean boundaries? Like in the mind pattern, yes, no, maybe. Like fearful if you're trying to set a boundary and you like can't do it. Oh. Um. So this is a question about mentalizing, really. Uh, I've been talking about mentalizing without calling it mentalizing. <clears throat> um, in learning to track your mind states, you're learning to mentalize. That is to say, you're, you're learning the capacity of being aware of your own thinking process. That's mentalizing. Um, in order to explain to a fearful avoidant or a fearful preoccupied person what they're doing, they would have to be able to mentalize it. They would have to be able to see their, their mind states. Fearful avoidant people uh, have a pretty good capacity for mentalizing because they lived in an abusive environments and they, they were having to track the mind states of someone else and then compare it to their own. Com see whether it's real or not. An example of that would be when, I guess my brother was 13 and I was 10, I saw him standing at the back door looking in the window and I just stood next to him because I'd spend so many times looking through the window before I went into the house to try and track what state my mother was in before we went in. And he said to me, <clears throat> have you seen her? What, she's, what, what is she like? And I said, I haven't. And he said, if, she, if it's bad, I just sneak upstairs and pretend I'm not home. That was his. But that's mentalizing, right? Tracking the other person's mind state, tracking your own, this is that. This is that, also uh, an indication of spiritual development, that you can do that, that you recognize that somebody's mindset is different from your own, that you recognize whether yours is accurate or not, that you know that there's an interactivity between mind states. Yours has an effect on someone else, theirs has an effect on you. They have a different agenda than you have. And that you can affect your mind state through thinking, you can regulate your mind state. Uh, preoccupied people are really bad at mentalizing, uh, and they're, they're so outwardly focused that they have very little experience of tracking their own inner world, so to get them to track that is very challenging. They don't really pay attention at all. On the helpless end, they're aware of their their own emotional life, but it's secondary to the emotional experience of their attachment figure. They, they have to spend so much time regulating the attachment figure, uh, that emotionally regulating the attachment figure, that the empathetic experience becomes the dominant experience, because that's the thing that tells them what they need to do for their caregiver. <coughs> Is that making sense? In a fearful, preoccupied person, they lose awareness of their own inner life and they're totally focused on, on the other person. So if you would ask them to reflect on their own inner life, they wouldn't know what you're talking about, and they wouldn't have to develop the skill to do it. So then they would have to begin to develop the skill of mentalizing in order to track their own experience. Can people fall into this dysregulation long after they're 
well into adulthood. I mean, I'm just thinking about people I see who are caregivers and are in that state where they have to think entirely right. about somebody else. And, and then when that person passes, they have right. a terrible time reestablishing their identity. <coughs> they do. And I just, but even if their childhood was pretty normal, but there they are do in, in this role that has reorganized their mind. It is possible to, that you can shift your underlying attachment presentation, but it's most likely, um, unless you've done something intentional, going to be a reflection of the early conditioning. For instance, um, I was just at this attachment conference <clears throat> at, at Harvard, and they, they were doing a presentation of a, a study on complex post-traumatic stress disorder in combat veterans. <clears throat> and they found that all of the categories of, of attachment strategy were very treatable except for fearful avoidant. And it was, it was incredibly resistant to any kind of treatment uh, <laughs> because the underlying attachment structures weren't there for them to integrate the experience of, of the combat. And so they're, they're beginning to screen for attachment because different attachment strategies need different kinds of treatment in order to respond to those kinds of conditions, conditioning. So that that basic, uh, same conference, they, the, the, no, different, sorry. Um, Dan Brown was saying that they've, they've just completed an fMRI study that sh showed that the first indications of uh, attachment structures in the brain happen between two and five months. <coughs> Maybe this is a way to take some of the blame out of it. What could you have done differently between two and five months of age so that your caregivers would have responded differently to you? Yeah, at two months old I realized the care sucked here so I just went on my own. <laughs> <laughs> But you're not wrong, we made those decisions. Fearful avoidant pe pe people in particular made the decision that they would not rely on anyone ever. <clears throat> that was the decision that they made somewhere along the line. And that was for fearful avoidant, no dismissing. Fearful avoidant. Fearful avoidant, <coughs> uh, fearful avoidant people uh, use social isolation as the primary means of emotional regulation, and that's the reason why their, their uh, exploration derails. <coughs> something happens that knocks them off sideways emotionally and then they withdraw from the situation to regulate it and that creates the perception of lack of reliability and so any kind of uh, advancement or promotion that you might get in terms of business uh, would be based on your the, the, the employer or the, the partner or the colleague's perception that you're reliable and if you can't produce that perception, they won't give you additional responsibilities. And so that tends to be the, what happens to fearful avoidant people. They have really good beginnings, they're very sweet, they're very likable, people want them around, they offer them more responsibility, which creates a stressor for them, and at the point that it becomes too stressful and they can't emotionally regulate it, they withdraw from the situation in order to regulate it and then the people that they, they don't perform for begin to think of them as unreliable. And as soon as you're thought of as unreliable, that opportunity is pretty much over. And so then you'd have to drop out and 
go find another opportunity and then pursue that. And so you have a, the pattern of success for fearful avoidant people is a lot of brilliant beginnings, some middles, and almost no conclusions. Fearful avoidant uh, uh, adults are disorganized children. Disorganized children are disorganized usually because of trauma. And trauma is single event or uh, big T trauma, single event, or uh, small T trauma, which is developmental trauma, so lots of small uh, intrusions. You could have had like, uh, parents who would have given you like a secure attachment, but then Something bad would happen, and then that could bring you down. Sure, it, it, um, attachment is is changeable. Uh, for instance, on the, this conference at Harvard, they were seeing if they could find a particular behavior on the part of the caregiver that led to fearful avoidance in 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 family systems where there was no overt trauma. So. One side of the fearful avoidant equation is that uh, the child is frightened of the caregiver, and the other equation is that the caregiver is frightened of the child, or at least that's how it was characterized. And what they noticed in those, uh, the review of those uh, videos is that when the child reached for reunion with the caregiver, the caregiver would step back until they were out of reach. So then the child would rush up to the caregiver wanting reunion and then freeze knowing that if they actually went any further that, that that would cause the withdrawal of their caregiver. And you would see them debating whether to do it. And then almost all of the time they would reach out and then the caregiver would withdraw and then the child would collapse. <coughs> but that's a, a fascinating finding. What You're the child you, you're seeking reunion with your caregiver, and you know that if you actually get too close to them, they'll withdraw from you. What do you do? You're being forced by your attachment mechanism to seek actual physical proximity to your caregiver so that you'll be safe. And you know that if you do that, that you'll lose your caregiver. How do you resolve that conflict? You dissociate, exactly, <laughs> and fall over. <laughs> and that's actually what happens, but it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Or, for instance, if the, the, ch the child is used to a violent response from their caregiver, they'll rush up and they'll stop just out of arm's reach. Or they'll run behind the caregiver and stand just out of arm's reach, so that they can't be hit. At some point, it's like solid, not solid, but it's, it's like at what age is your attachment um, sort of strong enough where even if trauma happens, if you already have a secure base, then you handle it just better? Well, secure people are more resilient, so they handle lots of stuff more and they have a much more dynamic range of emotion that they can tolerate. It's just easier. Yeah. They're not going to become insecure after a certain age, right? Um, it depends on what, what happens. They can. Yeah. Um, you know, they could get into a catastrophic relationship and that could affect their attachment. They don't. Um, that's sort of an outlier for them. Secure people tend to bond with secure people. And they send, tend to form long-lasting relationships. 
So once, once you get into your late 20s or early 30s, there are very few of them available. <clears throat> once you get into your late 30s, seven out of ten people that are available will be dismissing, according to this one study. Because dismissing people don't form long-lasting relationships. They don't, um, we're out of time, and this is a fascinating topic that we can talk about forever. <clears throat> I just don't want to lose, and we'll pick it up again tomorrow, I don't want to lose the, the focus of today's <clears throat> practice, which is metta for self. The instruction is to practice for yourself. If you can find the mind state of metta easily for yourself, just do the technique, the same technique that we did, except directed for yourself. If you find that you can't establish the mindset of metta easily for yourself, uh, practice for an easy person until you've established the mindset, and then switch the practice to yourself, paying attention to how long the mindset uh, lasts. As soon as it's, it drops off and you can't reconstitute it, go back to practice for the easy person, reestablish the mindset, and then switch and practice for yourself. If you found that yesterday you weren't <coughs> able to, to find reliable, easy people to practice with, then maybe you can practice today uh, further developing the shortlist. But if you have any kind of a shortlist of easy people, then you want to go back and forth. Remember, each time, each moment of practice with yourself where the mind state is there, will embed that in memory, and so when you, when you refer to memory, and you refer to the working model of yourself, there'll be more and more metta embedded in it, and at, at a certain point, when you think of yourself, the mind state of loving kindness will arise with the thought of yourself. Is that making sense? <clears throat> um, and it's just, like any concentration practice, if you notice you're not with the practice, you just come back to it. Suspend all judgment and just come back. Okay? <clears throat>